0: Every day, people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, would you order pancakes or waffles? Hey, everyone. Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm Katie Harbeth, your host. Today, my guest host is Josh Lawson. Uh, Josh and I work together at Meta as well, um, and I'll let him explain a little bit more about his background. But Josh, thanks for being here.
1: Great to be here. All
0: right. So first, we got to get to the, the hard question. Would you order pancakes or waffles?
1: This is, this is a hard question. So the perfect pancake in my view is like crispy on the outside, but still chewy. But just about every waffle is crispy and chewy. So I actually, if I had to pick between the other, you know, one or the other, I would go with waffles. All right.
0: Pancakes. Do you have toppings, favorite toppings that you would go with for? I'm super
1: basic. It's just the butter and the maple syrup.
0: See, so I, I with you on that, I don't like maple syrup.
1: Oh God. What's Very controversial.
0: Thing? Usually like a blackberry or huckleberry syrup. I could see like it. a fruit syrup okay, on top on with, with, with the with butter. I agree. I don't do any of the whipped cream or
1: okay, other things on
0: top. But
1: that's, that's yeah, stuff. it's a
0: little weird. I don't like ketchup and I don't like maple syrup.
1: Well, welcome to America. We have those things. <laughs> I know.
0: I know. And being from Wisconsin too, and like I like thinking of myself an honorary Canadian. So Canadians, please don't disown me for saying that I don't like maple syrup.
1: Forget about it.
0: Yes. <laughs> All right, Josh, before we jump into today's news, tell us a little bit more about what you did at Meta and your background overall.
1: Yeah, yeah. So before I came to Meta, I had kind of an elections background. So I was an elections lawyer, uh, led the elections agency in a state, and then came to Meta in 2019. You were part of my hiring panel um, and uh, eventually ended up being the uh, head of electoral and emerging risk there until just a couple months ago.
0: And that was on the product policy team, right?
1: Trust and Safety Policy, but yes, yes. subdivision with all those folks.
0: I just find I was looking at another companies, and it, a lot of people might have the title Head of Election,
1: oh, right, right. something, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs>
0: in their title, but it usually means that they're head of that for that particular, exactly, that 100%. particular team or group or 100%. all that kind of good stuff. Well, the first news thing that I want to talk about today, last week we did talk a bit about the Supreme Court and its term is starting this week, um, and we had some news on Friday about how they're going to take up the Texas and Florida bills. Yeah. Um, What do you think about this? And like, give us a little bit of the overview of the case. And like, what do you think that Supreme Court will be focused on?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think they were certainly right to take up those cases. Um, It's two cases, of course, one out of Florida, one out of Texas. 11th and Fifth Circuit are kind of split on how they were deciding things. So it's absolutely the right thing to do to take them up. I think everybody actually agreed that it should go up to to SCOTUS. Um, I am... Concerned about it for a couple of different reasons. Um, but I'm, I'm heartened that they're looking at it. Um, I don't think that the statutes themselves pass the vibe check and kind of for.
0: And go into what the yeah. statutes are in case people aren't familiar with these. Cause I find sometimes I use shorthand of like Texas and Florida. And if you're yeah. in this space, sometimes, you know, and other people are like, what about Texas and Florida?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the statutes are slightly different. They have different cutoffs for how big your platform needs to be, but kind of in essence, they require, uh, that you, uh, platforms of a certain size or of a certain amount of money per month, uh, are restricted on what kind of content moderation they can do. In addition to just the content moderation side and whether or not you can remove people there, there are some requirements about you have to monetize. You can't demonetize content from particular, uh, users. And then finally that you have to be able to defend your, uh, takedown if you do in fact, takedown, uh, and disclose around kind of what your rationale was and what policies you were applying, things like that. But what was kind of the bigger thing about it is that this would be a state level uh, decision to restrict the platforms on what they can and can't do as far as curating or, uh, or managing the communities on their platforms.
0: So do you think, so one of the challenges I think on this is operationalizing it yeah. at the state level. So there's first the question of, as we saw with some of the cases earlier this year, the Supreme Court isn't necessarily the foremost experts on the internet, as I think was that Elaine Kagan, Justice Kagan that yes, said that? Yeah, yes. I think. Um, do you think they're going to keep that sort of mindset as they go into these questions around these bills? Or how how do you think the, the justices might approach this?
1: I'm a little bit optimistic that this is actually putting it back in their playground um, because it is not so much about the technologies themselves. It's about state action or non-state action, right? So, I mean, I overpaid for law school like everybody else, but the first five words of the First Amendment still are, Congress shall make no law. And after the 14th Amendment, that means states can't either. And so a core question that uh, the Solicitor General and others have been saying is, You know, does that restriction on state action limits on state authority to edge into free speech territory? Is that something that we should also be able to apply even to big tech companies. And I think that actually is the playground of the Supreme Court to say, well, look, these are non-state actors. How would this expand our jurisprudence that we've developed over a very long time uh, dealing with the First Amendment?
0: So would you say, like, if you were a betting man, would you bet that the court rules in favor of the companies and not the states
1: in order to be able to make these laws? I think it's more likely that they will say it's a bridge too far to step in where Congress has not, where other major, uh, major players in this space have not and said uh, something akin to what they're requiring them to say, which is like, hey, these are basically, you know, public distribution at this point, And these are utilities and utilities can be regulated by the state. That hasn't been something that the Democratic branches have done on a federal level. And whether or not the states get to do that, I think might end up being uh, a little bit bridge too far for some of the justices.
0: Well, and let's talk about the operational challenges. Let's say the Supreme Court does say that Texas and Florida can pass these types of bills or any state can. We could end up with 50 different state bills about what tech platforms can do. That doesn't seem feasible on top of, let, we'll forget the moment, all the global regulation right. that they have to have to handle. Can you go into a little bit of the challenges of doing this stuff when there's a state-by-state state different laws?
1: Yeah, and you know more than anybody. Um, but when you have a hodgepodge of different laws that cover different jurisdictions, you know, the, the efficiencies that you try to realize are say, okay, well, where are the commonalities between them? Or should we just overhaul all of these different little pieces and just go to whatever the, the bare minimum one is? So race to the bottom. So whoever is the most restrictive jurisdiction, you just end up complying there. And that would be really, really bad because there are lots of states that probably wouldn't have as restrictive of regimes as some of the smaller states uh, that might end up getting something through their state legislatures.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could really end up being, you know, we're Section 230. If you were to repeal that, you worry about people taking down too much content. If it's a race to the bottom, it could be leaving up way more stuff than what people actually realize in doing this. And one of the challenges too is the internet is not a place with borders. And so you live in North Carolina, I live in Virginia. What happens when we're conversing on these online platforms? Which law is actually um, the one that's gonna, you know, be used in that situation? And that's part of the reason I think that if we are going to see action at the federal level, I do think it could be 2025 because we'll eventually have so many different state laws on this. We'll have so many different court cases, plus we'll be seeing things happening overseas that Congress will finally be forced to act because otherwise it'll just be there's too much different stuff happening here and nobody knows how to comply with it.
1: That's right. That's right. And it would be a, a huge kind of opening of the floodgates for all the states who would now think, you know, if the feds are not going to allow us are not going to have some kind of preempting legislation uh, that we have to have our own, you know, uh, process on how we want to do this. So,
0: yeah. Well, we'll certainly be watching. They've not yet announced, I think, when arguments will be, though I, d- I just learned this recently. I didn't realize the Supreme Court has very few days when they actually hear
1: yeah. No, arguments. Yeah, that's right. That's so, right.
0: That's right. It, you can look at the calendar and Sup- I think SupremeCourt.gov or whatever the website is. Yeah. And like, there's only a handful of ones that it could possibly being and then the ruling might come down in the middle of the primary season, right? Yeah, it
1: could. It could. Um and that's generally is is kind of the time frame for it and it would be a very interesting thing if literally, you know, Florida and, and Texas are the ones bringing this because the equivalent of what they're asking to do is to say any uh book that gets mailed to a school district, they have to shelve it on the school library um, shelves, and that is just not what those states are doing these days. <laughs> and that is exactly what their statutes are trying to do to social
0: media. Yeah, the latest that they could do it would be June, right? Is when it's the end of June is when the term. Yeah, it's usually whenever the which last would be call, after right. the primary season, supposedly, and right. as we're going into the convention, so right. we will definitely have to watch that. Well, continuing our trek on elections, because I, of course, bring everything back to elections. Uh, there was some drama um, this past week around favorite company X, Twitter. I'm going to call it Twitter. Um, where they let go four people in the Dublin office who are working on election integrity. And then on top of that, Yoel Roth did an interview at Code, um, and Yoel is going to be our guest here, so we're going to dig into that a bit more. But then the Twitter CEO, Linda Yaccarino was on afterwards kind of talking about very clumsily some of the efforts of The platform. And so I highly recommend people go back and listen to those interviews and you'll all get into that a little bit more. But I want to zoom out a little bit as, you know, both of us have worked on, you know, inside the companies trying to figure out what we need to do, how we prioritize, what we're going to do in different elections. And I'd love for you to kind of dig in, especially from your perspective on the policy angle, you know, writing these policies, thinking about them. What are some of the things that you would judge yourself up against and the company in terms of are we prepared enough? for a particular election.
1: Yeah, yeah, and obviously you have a background in this too. So there's what you say you're going to do and then your your capacity to actually execute on that. And those are two very distinct buckets. One is aspirational where you are putting together the policies that you think are calibrated correctly. And then the other is on execution that really has to effectuate uh, every aspect of, of those policies. And there's a lot of judgment calls that get made on the front end and on the execution end um, Know, down to classifiers and which languages to invest in, and where the threat vectors really are, and how you're going to effectuate some of these policies that you're putting together. I think the challenge for uh, Twitter, if we're going to call them Twitter, and for all of these platforms, is that all integrity challenges for platforms are also election challenges. You know, you have rises, hate speech, um, you could have doxing, etc. But not all uh, elections challenges are also just the regular integrity challenges. And so when you get rid of the people who are there to think about specifically the election related vectors and harms, then I think that you're you're cutting at the knees your effectiveness overall.
0: Yeah, I totally understand that every platform can have somebody who's solely focused on elections. But I do think that there needs to be somebody whose job it is to wake up every day thinking about that. Because yeah. if you don't have somebody doing that, then it can be very easy to not start paying attention until a couple of weeks before election day when in reality, I mean, when we were at Meta, we were starting a year and a half out from an election to understand the risks and, like you said, the languages and get people hired up, et cetera. Um, and I think a big part of this is about, I feel like you never really know if you're fully prepared. Right. You can do your best, right? And there's what you said about the policies, your ability to execute, but I would also add in there, add in there your your procedures and your decision making, like. Like I know some people make fun of these war rooms that we had and think that they were just PR stunts but my god no they were they were actually useful right because it was yeah. a way for us we could never imagine every scenario and how it would actually unfold and so you needed to have a way to kind of like process that and yep. get it through the decision-making process.
1: 100%, it's a convenient force. It's also a way to signal across the company and the teams that don't ordinarily work on elections response, that this is a company priority. And that's a concern, say with X, when you have, you know, Elon tweeting about the elections team that is no more, that's a chilling effect across the entire company. So there, maybe somebody who doesn't bring up in that meeting, "Hey, we probably should wait to roll out, you know, this new feature until after X election happens," right?
0: Yeah. Well, in setting X slash Twitter aside, right. like overall, there's a lot of platforms that are in different spots about where they are in preparing for elections. What and a lot of people are wondering, like, what's the impact of the layoffs? at different companies going to be what are you sort of watching for
1: yeah i think that I, I think that one thing that is is a red herring and is something that we kind of always have to defend against is that everybody always says look you know what makes elections so different than any other crisis right because there are crises all the time and there are spikes in hate speech and there are spikes in violence and there's all of that and the, and the reason is is that there is so much so many equities that go into that one moment right there's there's a go forward path that is getting set for a given country at a particular day and time and after that years and years will be different right and it's not just a violent protest or some kind of civic movement this is like decision making and that decision making brings a lot of equities that teams that are really really good at crisis response are not necessarily calibrated to address Right. And and that's why it's important for us to have people in the room, people like yourself, um, helping to guide that decision making process so we can talk about the equities about, you know, this is this is a democracy. This is a nominal democracy. You know, This is not really an elections process, even though it looks like one. Um, and so I, I think that my concern is just whether those teams feel empowered, because there are great people who are still in those spaces Uh people that i trust people that i think would be will be awesome and do great work i just want them to feel empowered to speak up and say this is still a company priority
0: yeah and i think too, that i we you me and joel and that we were on the uscla panel together along with brandon from color of change and one of the things i'm really trying to repeat over and over again is that we also need to kind of separate how the c suite resources this and makes decisions versus what the frontline workers are trying to do. Um, One of the things I'm starting to hear from a lot of folks is, you know, some of them are wondering if they should even stay in trust and safety. They're trying to figure out how to motivate their teams. They're worried about people getting burnt out, about around people not feeling like their, their work matters and can do anything. And so how, you know, if we're feeling that in September or I guess October now of 2023, we've really got to think about how we build up the resilience of in addition to talking about election officials and the resilience, they need to have researchers, but also the trust and safety field
1: Absolutely. and what that looks like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if they don't feel that they're, that their contributions are going to be valued, that they're going to be uh, part of the company's overall success metric for that year, then I, it, it's not a good spot.
0: No. Um last thing, you are now working with the Aspen Institute on some work around AI, trust, and elections. Walk us through a little bit of what that is what that is all about.
1: Yeah, so it's it's a real kind of core question is how popular access to some of these AI tools, especially on the generative AI side, may or or will affect public trust in democracies, especially in the United States ahead of the election. And so, you know, there we're asking kind of a couple of core questions, you know, what attributes of this technology set uh, really creates net new risks versus just a compounding of things that we already know and have been fighting for a long time. And they're, you know, really looking at the volume issues, the volume and quality, so quantity and, and quality of these uh, outputs, whether that's audio, text across different languages, uh video uh is really kind of coming together in a in a process that you know we'll hopefully have something more to announce in the next little bit but we're excited to kind of focus in there i think some of the concerns are that folks are not talking to each other which is not a new problem um but it may be that the platforms especially since the listeners here are kind of more acquainted with the platforms that the platforms have some things that they need to be doing ahead of the election whether that's uh calibrating their classifiers to anticipate greater volumes across different languages um which is always a always a challenge or you know whether that's looking really really closely at how we can elevate authoritative information especially at the hyperlocal level um because it's easy to put together different data sets that you can buy and data sets that you can get publicly and create really specific uh hyperlocal misinformation
0: yeah that's going to be some of the you know all of that adds to more of the trade offs that the platforms have to do right in yeah. terms of where they're putting their time, money and resources because all those other problems haven't gone away. Now AI is just accelerating it.
1: That's right. That's right. And we're looking at, you know, some things, Rand put together some interesting reports um, around astroturfing in China um, and some blueprints that they were able to get access to, particularly how to create fake uh, information ecosystems where the entire information space is astroturf. So you can click into an article and, oh, look, it has links to another article, but even that article is also astroturfed, fake uh, synthetic information. So easy to create, uh, believable information across.
0: Super. Well, Josh, thank you so much for uh, joining us and hopefully we'll be able to have you back.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: turn now to our interview with Yoel Roth. If you're here hoping that you're going to get his reaction to Linda Yaccarino's interview last week at Code after his conversation with Kara Swisher, that is not going to be happening in this piece. Yoel and I were actually supposed to record this uh, Wednesday before he did the interview at Code. We had this scheduled before we even knew he was going to speak at Code. But we think there's a lot of really important things that we need to be talking about in this space. And so we are moving on from that. I just wanted to let people know, if you're listening to this, hoping to get any, hot takes. They're not here. But please enjoy my conversation with Yoel. Well, Yoel, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: We were supposed to do this in California, and then that didn't quite work. And so we are now doing this remotely. But you know, recently, I wanted to jump in first with a New York Times op-ed that you recently wrote about the harassment that you faced since leaving Twitter and stuff like that. And there's a lot of facets to this that I really want to explore. But I'm kind of curious first, given the very public harassment that that you faced, I know a lot of other people have faced. You faced it this week, today. I saw something else that Elon tweeted about you and your interview. I think he,
2: he called me the purest form of evil he's ever seen, which you know, considering I'm I'm an academic writing little articles that nobody reads seems slightly out of proportion. But, um, you know, I, I guess I'm the most evil creature on this planet.
0: If you want to take it back and want me to make you T-shirts or stickers or anything like that, like I'd be more than happy to, to do that.
2: <laughs> you know, I was thinking of putting it on my resume, because um, it, it does seem like the sort of endorsement that future employers might be interested in. Like, most evil creature on the planet, according to Elon Musk.
0: I mean, you might want to think about it, but in all seriousness, like this has caused real turmoil in your life. And I'm curious why you continue to choose to speak out, because I think a lot of people would totally understand if you just wanted to hole away in in, a university or somewhere like that and, and not be speaking out.
2: Yeah. I mean, in many ways, not speaking is the comfortable and the safe default. It's a way to do the work that you want to do to get paid a salary to maybe publish some articles and and drive a little bit of change in the world. But as I've been thinking about what I can do to contribute to issues that I care about, to contribute to election security, Internet governance, safety, um, I've come to realize that I'm in perhaps a uniquely privileged position to be able to speak freely about topics that so frequently are constrained. A lot of people who work for the big tech companies when they exit are encouraged and incentivized to sign non-disparagement agreements that significantly restrict their ability to speak about their former employers. And from the company perspective, this is a great thing to do because you spend a relatively small amount of money and you avoid a whole bunch of bad PR. That didn't happen for me. Um, whether it was because of ignorance or or just a policy of not doing it, I exited Twitter without signing anything. Um, And so I'm in a position of being able to speak in an unencumbered way, but also because of the consequences that I've already faced, I'm in a position where there's not a whole lot more that can really happen to me. If Elon Musk turns to Twitter and calls me the most evil creature on the face of the planet, okay, what does that do? What does that do to me that him calling me a pedophile hasn't already done? And that sounds a little bit twisted, but it's also liberating. I feel that I can speak largely without consequence, which means I can speak my conscience and I can speak about the facts that a lot of times get swept under the rug.
0: I think one of the things that scares trust and safety people about or anybody about doing this work is that they might face this type of harassment, right? People have been doxxed by various online organizations. They worry about their names getting out there. You gave a, a talk at the Trust Trust and Safety Conference, TrustCon, in July. And I thought you had some really great points that I think might be worth reminding, because I think a lot of our listeners are trust and safety people or, or in this space. And so what are some things that you're recommending to folks to do to help protect themselves before something even happens.
2: For trust and safety folks, and especially for people who are sort of midway into their career, they're climbing the ranks, they're doing this work, um, there can come a moment where you kind of have to decide, do I want to be public and advance my career? Or do I want to sort of keep doing the work that I'm doing and avoid the spotlight? And that can feel like a really unfair trade-off to have to make. Like you run into a limit of how public you can be uh, and consequently your career advancement is is sort of limited. I think that's a false trade-off. Certainly people should be thoughtful and intentional about if or how they speak publicly, but I think there's some practical advice that everybody in the trust and safety field can implement in their lives to give themselves a bit more space to be public without taking on a ton of risk. So at TrustCon, I went through five pieces of advice. Um, I'll I'll run through the highlights now. The first one is, even if you're not public, even if you aren't speaking about these issues, assume you are already a target. You can't unspill the milk, so to speak. The moment that you have been doxxed, the moment that somebody knows where you live, that knowledge is out there. You can't take it back. You can't fix it after the fact. And so... I would encourage everybody whether they're public or not whether they're senior or not whether they work on sensitive issues or not to already take measures to protect themselves and so second piece of advice is take the simple steps first there are tools that everybody can use today where you provide a credit card you spend a hundred bucks and you can solve many of these problems delete me is a fabulous product that i've used for a long time to be clear, I don't get a commission or anything, but it really simplifies a lot. I of
0: use work. it too. That's what I. That's yep. what I use.
2: Reputation Defender is another great one um, for folks who work at large companies. Reputation Defender actually has corporate memberships, so that you can provide these services to your employees. That's a really good benefit. Um, but then also, there's other companies that are providing related services in this space. Tall Poppy do a lot of great work around training people around digital safety, doing threat assessments. Um, and the developers of Block Party have actually built a new tool called Privacy Party that really effectively streamlines some of the work of protecting your personal information. Explore these options. Do it now. Take the simple steps first. Don't wait for this to be a weekend project someday when you have time. Do it today. And I think there's, there's real progress that everyone can make. For those folks who are working within companies, I would also say encourage your teams to do this too. One of the things that I heard after TrustCon was that a lot of people have been feeling anxiety and fear about these issues and didn't feel like they could talk about them or that there wasn't really anybody they could talk to about them. I think it's incredibly important to normalize conversations about this. Normalize talking about how scary it is to see your colleagues be targeted. Normalize talking about strategies for dealing with this. The more that we accept that for better and for worse, this is what doing trust and safety work in 2023 looks like, the sooner we as a community can come up with strategies for resilience.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I'll put links to all of those things in the in the show notes. And um, you know, one of the things too is while I hate to see trust and safety employees harassed for this work with your op-ed, one of the things I was really glad that you were highlighting was the trade-off that companies face around employee safety and sometimes the things they're asked, particularly by governments, to do, because I don't think that's sometimes a part of the conversation. And you see people being like, I can't believe this platform. Platform chose to do this. And they don't realize, like, I think we're very privileged sometimes in the US, even though there's a lot of harassment happening here and horrible things, like, elsewhere around the world people have been arrested people have been raided there's there's been real threats and i'm curious if you can share a little bit more about how you've seen that trade-off playing off or playing out in the roles that you've had and how that might show up in like the day-to-day work
2: yeah i mean what you said about there being an international history to this practice is exactly right in the united states i agree we've been really fortunate to largely not see some of the sort of government-sanctioned attacks on private individuals. Not entirely, but largely that hasn't happened to folks based in the United States. But there is a long global history to these practices. And in the article, I wrote about some noteworthy cases in Brazil and in India and in Russia, where we saw this playing out. But we know where this ends. Um, I think probably the most striking case study in what it looks like for the government to orchestrate a campaign to silence people and to influence decision-making played out in Saudi Arabia. We saw Saud al Katani, who was sort of the fixer for Mohammed bin Salman and for the Saudi royal family, engage widely on social media in a campaign to intimidate, harass, and silence activists, to target journalists. And people died as a result of this targeting. It wasn't just online harassment, and it worked. If you talk to activists, if you talk to people working on human rights issues in Saudi Arabia, they say they don't feel they can safely speak publicly. They worry about the retaliation they might face. And that means that there's less dissent. It means that there are fewer people speaking up for human rights in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And I think that's really dangerous. I worry that we're beginning to go down a road that looks a lot like that in the United States as well. We've already seen some of these campaigns impact corporate decision-making. Now, I'm trained originally as a social scientist, and so I love to be able to make kind of causal arguments. This happened, therefore we can prove this other thing happened. Everybody who works in trust and safety knows that that's not really how trust and safety works. Inevitably, there's ambiguity. The work that we do lives in the gray areas. And so In a gray area moment, a moment when smart people can make an argument for banning an account and smart people can make an argument for leaving that account alone, how do you decide what to do? And in those moments of ambiguity, I think we've already seen instances where companies have shied away from making challenging decisions and have chosen to, if not abandon their rules, then certainly bend them a bit in a way that reduces the possibility for blowback. In the article, I talk about a couple of noteworthy examples. I cite Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who repeatedly violated the Twitter rules, m- got more strikes, more chances to break the rules than most users typically do before ultimately getting banned. I talk about the decision to ban Trump. And I talk about some of the notable culture war accounts like libs of TikTok that, by all accounts, break platform policies left and right and yet are left alone. And you have to ask yourself why. Why? And the conclusion I came to after my work at Twitter was companies are scared of retaliation. And so they back away from these really difficult decisions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I found in my work at Facebook that could take a bunch of different, uh, it could look at a bunch of different ways. Like one could be, we don't want them, they'd run to the press. And next thing you know, they're on Fox News complaining about this happening and they and they don't talk about why it may or may not violate the rules and the company just doesn't want the reputational concern. I think, you know, there's concerns about, there's a lot of talk about jawboning right now and whether or not, where does things move from people having a point of view, which they have a right to do too, to where it's getting coercive, where it might be like they send a letter, they call a hearing, they they take other things in which to use their power to try to get these companies to take some of these these actions. And this is one of the toughest trade-offs I always had deal with was also wanting to protect political speech, but also that harm component of of what they're of what they're facing. And I think as we go into especially next year with all these elections, I think those choices are just going to get harder.
2: No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think now that people are aware that this is a strategy that works now that we are having public conversations about jawboning and about the coercive influences on companies like I think it's good that we're talking about it. I think it's good that we are trying to establish what the appropriate limits are on governments twisting the arms of platforms. Like, I'm all for those conversations. I also worry that, similar to what we saw with the Russia, the Russian playbook for election interference internationalizing and becoming more of a part of everyday practice, that these tactics will become more and more and more widespread. And we're seeing that already with the proliferation of hostage-taking laws in different countries. To be clear, not just authoritarian countries. Part of the online safety bill in the UK actually, at one point, included hostage-taking provisions. And Can you
0: explain that a little bit for what people? Because they might be like hostage-taking. What do you? What do you? Who's mean? taking hostages? Yeah. <laughs>
2: so yeah. So what we've seen emerge have been bills that purportedly regulate platforms, and among their requirements include a provision that says platforms must maintain an on-the-ground staff presence in the country. India's IT Act was notable in enforcing this requirement on large platforms, but we've seen it in other countries as well. Turkey, notably, has requirements about local residency. And on the face of it, these requirements usually are billed as being about customer service. It's basically saying if there are users of Twitter or Facebook in India and they're having problems in India then there should be somebody located in India who is responsible for the experience that those people have. That sounds great. The problem is those people have to be registered with the government, and they are a prime target for getting arrested if the government disagrees with what platforms are doing. And that is exactly how we've seen these employees be targeted in Russia, certainly in Turkey, in India, and more and more, Countries that are looking for a hook for their regulation, a way to really have it be consequential for big tech companies, are saying, look, fines aren't doing it. Bad press isn't doing it. Maybe if we arrest their employees, that will do it. And that's a really scary direction of travel, in my opinion
0: well and if people are like are they really going to arrest people in brazil i want to say it was 2014 2016, uh, 2016 yeah 2016 was... the facebook uh a vice president down cuz facebook on whatsapp i th- at a brazilian airport got arrested because a judge wanted them to hand over i was at the company at the time wanted us to hand over data that we didn't have because it was encrypted and it yep. took it took 12 14 hours something like that for it to work through to get him released but that sent a shockwave through the company of like oh my god you know this somebody we actually know has been arrested by a government by because of a judicial order and a lot of people started you know We needed to start doing more trainings for employees about what to do when this type of stuff might happen. Um, And it was for me, it was one of the first realizations that, like, no, this is this is really real.
2: Yeah, I think that case was a a wake up call for a lot of folks who work in the tech industry because we realized it could happen to us. There was nothing about the experience of of a Facebook market director that differed that significantly from any other senior employee traveling in the course of doing their jobs, and so. I remember after that incident, I started having conversations with Twitter's corporate security team about what I should do if somebody wants to take my corporate laptop when I'm entering a country. Like if I'm traveling to Singapore and I connect through Hong Kong and somebody pulls me into a side room and says, give us your laptop and give us your Twitter login credentials. What do I do? And now I know the answer to that. The answer is always comply. Do what they say. But you have to think about it. Because when, especially when you work in trust and safety, you know that you have a huge amount of power and a huge amount of responsibility. You want to protect users and their data. You want to do your job with integrity. But if literally a gun is held to your head, what do you do? And we had to start having those conversations as a matter of fundamental business strategy.
0: So I jumped right into the meat of everything with our interview. Let's let's zoom back a little bit. For folks who might not know you um, as well, can you share a little bit about your background and what your role was at Twitter?
2: Absolutely. So... I originally am an academic researcher. I've been studying trust and safety since before that was really a term that anyone knew. Um, And a few, I go back sometimes to the articles I was writing in graduate school where I was studying dating apps and and especially the gay dating app Grindr. And I was writing about moderation and trust and safety, but I didn't really know what words to use for these weird practices. And so I called it content management because it seemed like these platforms were managing the content on them. And now we all know that content management is like WordPress and it's how you publish your blog. So clearly I I was very bad at naming things, but I got really interested in the practices that platforms use to arbitrate how people can express themselves and share information. And after I finished my PhD, I had the opportunity to join Twitter and worked in really every piece of trust and safety over the eight years that I was at the company. When I first joined Twitter, I was on a team called Product Trust, which was doing safety by design and privacy by design work. So really working directly with product management and engineering to think about the development of new features at Twitter. So one of the first products that I worked on was Twitter's first algorithm. When we introduced a ranked home timeline and we had to decide do people have a control to turn this off and go back to a reverse chronological timeline? I got to work on that product. And so it was kind of a cool applied experience of thinking about Twitter, not just as being this monolithic product, but as something that you could shape from within to promote safety outcomes. I also worked on developer policy issues, especially around the time of Cambridge Analytica. And then after the 2016 election, really focused in on manipulation, adversarial activity, and election security. Um, So I ran Twitter's war room to figure out what the Russians had done and what we should do about it. And from that point on, it was really a, a turning point in my career. A lot of companies now have integrity teams, and that's something I'm delighted to see. I think I was the first one with the job title of Site Integrity. And I remember I told people about my new job, and they were like, Site Integrity? are you the person that keeps the servers from crashing? And I was like, no, 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 that's site reliability. But this concept of the integrity of the conversation of protecting it from manipulation really became the through line in my work at Twitter. And so in all, I was at the company for, for eight years um, following Dell Harvey's departure. Dell was the head of trust and safety for 13 years. After she left, I became the, the head of trust and safety. And then Elon Musk bought the company, and and as they say, the rest is history.
0: And what are you doing now?
2: These days, I've returned to my academic roots. Um, So I'm enjoying having a bit of a break from from industry, and I'm getting a chance to research and write about tech governance issues as an independent researcher. So I'm affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, um, with Berkeley, and with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I've been working on a couple of different projects. The biggest one being a study of how we can translate trust and safety to the domain of federated and decentralized social networks. So thinking critically about platforms like Mastodon and Blue Sky and Threads and thinking about what we've learned from 15 years of trust and safety at the central corporate platforms and how we might adapt that to a decentralized context.
0: Speaking of the stuff, some of the stuff that you wrote, you've also written a great piece in Lawfare that I really liked on content moderation's legalism problem and like whether or not a public editor could solve some of the crisis of trust that we have around social media. And I'm wondering if you could dig into that piece a little bit more because I love thinking about the transparency of how we talk a lot about transparency of like how the platforms work, what the algorithms are. We don't talk as much about transparency around the decision-making process. And sometimes that might even be more consequential. And so I'm wondering if you could dig into that a little bit more.
2: Yeah. So my inspiration for this article came when I I reread truly one of the canonical articles about content moderation, which is Kate Klonick's The New Governors. Um, and this is, in my opinion, one of the first and one of the absolute best pieces that discusses where the hell trust and safety even came from and what does it mean? And uh, Kate is a law professor, and so she writes about the invention of a system of governance within platforms. And critically, she talks to some of the people who did it. So she talks to Nicole Wong, who was one of the early legal executives at Google and who was tasked with figuring out how to do trust and safety before... Anybody had even really come up with these practices. And what I was struck by when I read this article was that there's a through line in all of this trust and safety work, and the through line is lawyers. And at every one of the major tech platforms, at Google, at Twitter, at Meta, you see that a lot of trust and safety work is deeply influenced by legalistic thinking. It's influenced particularly by American lawyers, by American jurisprudence, by the American Constitution and the First Amendment. And we've seen platforms build these mini constitutions in the way that Kate's article describes, and then really struggle to do the very hard work of governing. And I sort of I was struck by the thought that maybe that's not exactly the right structure for platform governance after all. And are there other structures that could work? And so as I was pulling on that thread of legal thinking and trust and safety, I was struck by the fact that so many of the moments that really felt like we made the right decision according to our policies, but it was the wrong decision for our users. So many of them were moments where we had really tied ourselves up and and kind of put on golden handcuffs of our rules and said, look, we are bound by the letter of the policy and that's it. And we can change the policies, but we won't deviate from them no matter what. And there were some really notable failures of that approach. One of the ones that I was really struck by towards the end of my time at Twitter was the case of the culture war account Libs of TikTok. And I've spoken about it a bit before previously, but in case you are fortunate enough not to be familiar with this hateful account, one of its one of its many hateful activities is attacking doctors who provide gender-affirming health care. And we ran into a question at Twitter of whether attacking a doctor for providing health care to trans youth is a violation of our hateful conduct policies. And the lawyers on the team parsed the letter of our rules and said, well, doctors are not a protected category, and so they don't fall within the scope of our policy, and so it's not a violation. And that seemed so wrong to me. It seemed like we were enforcing the letter of the law while completely failing to apply the spirit and the intention of the rules. And that incident nearly caused me to quit my job But And this was pre-Elon, to be clear, but also really inspired me to think about what would a better form of governance look like in moments like that. And the argument that I make in the lawfare piece is we shouldn't throw out the laws. We shouldn't throw out the legal thinking. They do important work. But companies should give themselves a little bit of space to make principled decisions in moments of ambiguity and then explain those decisions. It can't be anarchy. It can't be anything goes. We've seen what that looks like with Elon, and it sucks. But if you make a principled decision, you talk to your community about it, you explain your values and your principles, and then you leave yourself open for contestation and discussion and improvement, I think that creates a more flexible system of governance that can help platforms navigate some of these really challenging moments
0: yeah i think you bring up another one of those really interesting trade offs where people want they're like just tell us what the rules are so we know what they so they know what they are so we can follow them and then i remember at at when i was at facebook um we did do a lot that was around spirit of the policy and people are upset with that because they're like but we don't understand why because if your rules this But, you know, but again, we couldn't come up with every situation. Like, I remember the Tide Pods challenge is one that like pops into my head where like it didn't exactly fit with the policies and what was happening. And I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but I think one of the benefits of the Facebook Oversight Board and the Trump decision and the decision to let him back on the platform, Elon did it in a Saturday night poll for people to decide whether or not he was going to come back on. Whereas I think Meta, I mean... I, I'm a little biased here, but I do think Facebook shared a lot more of the the, the thought process of like. We're letting them back on. Here's how we're going to be monitoring it, et cetera. And I would hope that we would see more as we continue to go on of sort of that, again, that it doesn't need to be, I think you said this, so like it doesn't need to be every single decision. It's the real precedent setting decisions of thinking about how do we help provide a bit more of that transparency and just being honest about the fact that, listen, by the letter of the law, it doesn't violate, but like we think that the right thing to do is this. And that's why we're yeah. doing it. And we can debate that in the public sphere if that was right or not um, in terms of doing that. But like there's no clear answers on a lot of these things.
2: A hundred percent. Like I, I actually agree with you. I think Facebook did it exactly right. People sometimes um, think that because I was part of the team that decided to ban Trump, that I believe he should have been banned forever. And the truth is, that's a complicated decision. Like, is it if somebody is a candidate for the highest office in the United States, should they be able to use social media? Like, I am uncomfortable with the notion of platforms categorically denying them the ability to use their services. Maybe it's the right thing to do, but it's not an obvious choice. And what I said before Elon bought Twitter, what I told Elon and what I continue to believe now is the only way to make that decision is to have a rigorous process of evaluating the risks and trade-offs. And I actually believe that's what Facebook did. They ran a process. They assessed the risk. They defined clear guardrails that said, look, if this happens, then we will do this. And by all accounts, they seem to be sticking to it. And they got a lot of heat for reinstating him because there's a lot of people out there who think Trump shouldn't be allowed back on social media. But what I care about is a thoughtful decision-making process. And I believe that's what we got from Facebook. And so credit where credit is due, the company did exactly the work that I would want them to in that moment.
0: Yeah, and I I hope that it does become something that we do see a bit more from some of the other platforms. So we've been talking a lot about trade-offs and we may have already talked about some of the hardest ones that, that you had to face when you were at Twitter. But I'm curious if you could share some of the ones like maybe either specific examples, but also even just broad themes of, cause I think sometimes people, you know, they only hear about this in the news around a particular piece of content, um, and not necessarily how this shows up in the day-to-day work for employees. So, um, I'm wondering if you can kind of elaborate on that experience for you.
2: Yeah. So I'll give you, I'll give you two examples, one about product and one about policy decisions. Um, the product decision actually touches on the poll that you mentioned. So the the extremely scientific Twitter poll to reinstate Donald Trump. Um, I was part of the team that launched polls on Twitter. So let me, let me drop some facts about this. Polls on Twitter are not reliable, like not even a little bit. Like they are, in fact, one of the most manipulation prone parts of the Twitter product. And so your response to that is probably, wow, Yoel, some head of integrity you were, you launched an easily manipulable product. Let's unpack the trade-offs of that one, because this is like classic trust and safety. There is no easy solution. I love it. Should polls be anonymous on Twitter? The product manager building the feature, this was back in 2015 or 2016, asked me, should they be anonymous? And I thought about it and I said, well, yeah, because If somebody runs a politically sensitive poll, and then we get a subpoena from a government that's mad about the results of that poll, and they say, you know, tell us everybody who voted no on this poll, and we have that data, then all of a sudden we're turning over some extremely sensitive information to people who could use it to actually cause harm to people. So I said, no, polls should be private. We shouldn't have those kinds of records. What do you lose if you do that? Well, We couldn't integrate polls with some of the internal anti-spam systems that would detect fraudulent and manipulative behavior because those systems have logs. And so if we integrated polls with all of these other tools, we would actually be creating records that potentially would be responsive to data requests and would undermine privacy. And so we said, look, polls can be private, but they won't be as secure as other parts of Twitter because they're just not connected with the anti-spam systems. So this was a case where you can't have both, or at least within the context of the product as it existed, it was either or, it was privacy or security. And we picked privacy. And years later, there were lots of situations where people would look at polls on Twitter and say, wow, this seems super gamed and not real. And we were like, yeah, we made a decision that we prioritize the privacy of this data over our ability to address spam issues. Reasonable minds could arrive at different decisions there. Like, I'm curious, where would you land in that decision?
0: I think I'd go with the privacy land, too. Like, I think online polls, like, I mean, I I would hope most reasonable people know that, like, they're easily gamed. It's kind of an entertainment type thing in which to do that. Like, you should not be basing, you know, it should not be the sole Thing that you base a decision on. Um, if if you had been in the room, I was with my friends that Saturday night um, when that poll went live, and like the the choice words that came out of my mouth <laughs> when I was like, <laughs> "I'm like, I can already tell you how this poll is going to go. Like, you don't even have to run yeah. it. Like, you know what's yeah. going to happen."
2: Um, no, and I, I think like that's, but different people will land in different parts of that of that decision. And I think that's, you know, I I, I love the name of your podcast specifically because it's highlighting that like the choices that trust and safety professionals are tasked with making don't involve a good option and a bad option. There's two bad options or five bad options. And your choice is which bad option is the least bad, given your priorities. And priorities can differ from person to person and company to company. At Twitter, privacy was the priority back in 2016 when we made that choice. But reasonable minds can differ. And I think that's an important thing to to know about the internet. I'll talk about one other example, um, and this was this was really one of the one of the toughest decisions that we had to make in the context of the 2020 election, and it was uh, the Stop the Steal movement. Um, in November of, of 2020, Donald Trump lost the election. This was widely recognized. There were a number of challenges raised in court about election results. They were all thrown out of court. There was no evidence whatsoever of election fraud. And yet there was a group of people who asserted without evidence that there had been fraud in the 2020 election. And that group, including on platforms like Twitter and Facebook, organized under the hashtag Stop the Steal. And the thesis of their organization was misinformation. It was a lie about the election. But they were saying, look, we're really mad about what happened here and we're going to protest about it. And on January the 6th, we're going to protest in the Capitol and we're going to get together to express our displeasure about what we believe to have been electoral fraud. Now, you can argue that the basis of their demonstration is a lie, and it was, and that lie violated Twitter's rules. But is it an appropriate thing for a platform to do to take down a protest movement that's organizing, whether or not you agree with the premises of that protest movement. And for a platform like Twitter that had been so instrumental in the formation of Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson and around the country, for a platform that had had a long history of the Arab Spring and the use of the platform for political speech and for organization and mobilization, we we really struggled with this, this question of whether an explicitly nonviolent protest movement based on a lie, but a protest movement should be considered against our policies. And the conclusion that we reached was, we will label the misinformation, we will restrict it, we will take down misleading claims, but we're not going to ban Stop the Steal. And I look back on that choice now with the knowledge of what happened on January the 6th. And, and my question to myself, as I was working that day and watched the violence unfolding in the Capitol, was, did we completely fuck this up? Did we get this totally, totally wrong? And with hindsight, yeah, but it's an impossible trade-off. It's one of those moments where knowing what you know, with the facts that you have, with every statement from the organizers of the protest saying, it is nonviolent, don't bring your weapons, with the history of protests on Twitter, what's the right decision in that moment? And pretend you don't know what happened. In that moment, it's impossible to know what the right decision is. And yet, somebody has to make it.
0: I keep thinking, like, it's just how do you know when it's going to shift from being a peaceful protest to not? And people can say a lot of different things, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to come true. And I think about what, you know, also the protests that happened the summer of 2020 around Black Lives Matter and things like that. And there were elements of it, right? That there was violence and and riots and stuff. But like, for the most part, there were many other protests that were very peaceful um, of people gathering. There was also the whole COVID health issue on top of that. But like, I think that's one of the things for people to remember is You're in the moment, you don't know what's going to happen. You have imperfect information, and you could have just as easily made the mistake of taking it down, and there wouldn't have been violence necessarily. And then you got criticized for doing that. And you, just like you, I've spent so much time looking back on some of the decisions that we've made, and there's elements that I would do differently. There's elements I wouldn't. There's elements where I would be more transparent about our thinking our thought process. I would also say too that, and as, as we go into this year of elections, these policies are living and breathing things. This is one of the reasons that it's just not easy to be like, tell me what the rules are and we're going to stick with them and like, don't change them. We want them to be stable. Things change where society has changed. Our lived experiences change of what all of this looks like. And so we should expect that platforms are going to continue to evolve their thinking on all of this.
2: That's right. And you know, you you look back on some of the most consequential decisions not just for the internet but for the republic, um and you wonder what would have happened had this decision played out a bit differently. Had a room of staffers in Silicon Valley and Washington D.C. made different choices. And one feeling I'm left with there is that that's a terrifying amount of power to Give to the employees of tech companies, most of whom have no desire to have that kind of power and who are scared by it. But, but somebody has to make those decisions. And so, what's the right structure for doing so? Is it direct democracy? Do you run a poll to make these decisions? Like, that doesn't seem like it works. Is it having government make those decisions? That seems really scary to me. The notion of having a government decide if a protest against the government is okay, like that is one of the bases of the First Amendment. And so there's no right answer to any of this. And I will I I, part of what I've spent my time since leaving Twitter doing is unpacking the successes and unpacking the failures and not trying to to excuse them, but to explain them and to discuss them and to understand them and to help folks understand that like this work of governance is imperfect and it's bad and it makes mistakes, but it also is what makes platforms usable. And it results in moments when sort of the tides of horribleness on the internet are held back. Um, And so, you know, uh, uh, not to end on a total downer, but I'll, I'll say like the moments when trust and safety succeeds, you generally don't hear about it and you generally don't talk about it. We agonize over the failures and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to turn a little bit of that agonizing into something productive about the future of the field.
0: I love that. Well, we'll leave that there. There are many other questions. So hopefully we can have you back on the podcast at some point in time. Anytime. But I know you're super busy. Thank you so much for joining. I will put links to all the stuff that you all mentioned in the in the show notes. Um, and I hope thank you so much for joining me. And I hope everybody else has a really great day.
2: Thanks for having me. See you.
0: Thanks. Right, bye.